This is an ABC podcast. Hello, David Rutledge here. Welcome to the Philosopher's Zone once again. It's great to have your company. How much do you know about women philosophers in ancient Greco-Roman times? Probably not a lot, and there are plenty of reasons for that. We do have evidence that women were students and sometimes teachers within the various philosophical sects that existed at the time, and we have some evidence that they produced philosophical works. But the works mostly haven't survived, and the stories of these women philosophers mostly come down to us in the form of biographies written by men. And so if you're interested in the history of philosophy, especially the history of women in philosophy, it can be a frustrating job trying to get to the bottom of exactly who these women were and what they were doing. Well, my guest this week spends a fair bit of time dealing with that frustration. Her name is Dawn Laval Norman, and she's a senior research fellow at the Institute for Religion and Critical Inquiry at Australian Catholic University in Melbourne. And we had a great conversation this week talking about the role of women in the ancient world, the conceptualization of philosophy as female within the various schools and sects at the time, and the story of one very famous woman philosopher who came to a very bad end. Usually, the range of different philosophical sects were not that interested in changing the social role that women were playing in the society at the time. They were really interested in encouraging these women to kind of live lives of virtue within those social roles. So kind of like as good wives and mothers. So I would just like to talk about the specifics of a couple of different um, philosophical schools and how this worked out differently in in those schools. So to start out with Pythagoreanism, Pythagoreanism is really interesting for women because there were a lot of women around the circle of Pythagoras and his own family and his students. And I don't want to go into this in great detail, but there developed a tradition of writing Pythagorean texts much later than Pythagoras lived. So he was living in like the 6th century BCE, but a lot of these texts were written in like the 1st century CE. And these are texts that were purportedly written by women in his circle. So Theano, his wife, wrote a number of treatises, philosophical treatises, or supposedly did, but these were pseudepigraphic treatises. So they're written as if they were written by Pythagoras's wife as advice for, for philosophical women, but they're probably actually written by men. And so here we have an interesting problem already with our sources and how difficult it is to get at philosophical women, because even treatises that were supposedly written by philosophical women, which is like minute number, even those we think might not have been written by women. So we have in the Pythagorean tradition important female philosophers, but it that comes from a later part of the tradition. Now, what about Stoics and Epicureans? These are also kind of very important sects in the ancient world. Uh, For Stoicism, our best evidence comes from Musonius Rufus, who wrote a treatise. And in the treatise, he addresses the question explicitly, can women be philosophers? And his answer is, yes, of course they can be philosophers. Uh, But the way that he talks about them being philosophers is that they are good housekeepers, and they are good mothers, and they raise their children well, and and they know how to run a household. So it's a very gender, kind of gender specific mode of being a philosopher. At Epicureanism, they get a really interesting uh, kind of a slur against them by their opponents that women are part of their circle simply to provide pleasure. So there's this idea that all of the women who are students of Epicurus are actually prostitutes and that they're there because they're allowed to continue their profession in this philosophical school and provide pleasure to all of the other students. So you, you kind of see how you could use women to characterize your opposing philosophical sect negatively or positively, as the case may be. And then finally, Platonism. Platonism has a really interesting 
engagement with women and the roles they play, starting with Plato. He creates a very male-centric world. Most of his dialogues are almost only comprised men who are talking to each other. And there's this wonderful moment where it kind of becomes explicit in the Phaedo, which is the dialogue right before Socrates' death. It starts out where Socrates is talking to his wife, Xanthippe, who has their baby with them. And she breaks out weeping and she's so sad that Socrates is about to die. And Socrates says, send the woman away. Let her go away so we can actually philosophize. And there's this idea that the woman has to be sent away because she can't control her emotions in such a way to lead a genuine philosophical conversation in the face of death. So you have the sort of rejection of women as the emotional, non-rational people who can't be part of the dialogue. But then, of course, famously, Plato also includes women's voices, um, especially Diotima of Mantinea in the Symposium and Aspasia of Miletus in the Menexenus as these kind of wise teaching figures, but he doesn't allow them to speak in their own voices on stage. So Socrates is the one that says, oh, last you know, last week I was talking to Diotima and this is what she said. So all of the kind of the wise voices that women of women that he Plato does include in his dialogues are always ventriloquized by kind of on stage, on stage speaking presences. And then the Platonic tradition developed in interesting ways. Uh, we think we have female students in the early academy and then in Neoplatonism this really flowered and we see more women kind of taking central roles in the Neoplatonic school. We have Sozopatra, whom Eunapius tells us was a, a Neoplatonic teacher in the fourth century. And then famously, we have Hypatia of Alexandria in the early fifth, who was a, an important public teacher of Platonism. Right. So when you say that women are there in the philosophical schools as students and teachers, and then in subsequent years, we find their philosophical works being written about by men, what's happened to the works themselves? It's really hard to know because what we have are stories of philosophical women when ancient men wanted to tell us the stories of philosophical women. But you're absolutely right. There were things. We have evidence that women did write treatises. So one of the students of Epicurus, Leontion, the prostitute, (laughs) supposedly wrote a treatise that people in the ancient world had and they cited and we don't have it at all anymore. And so some of it is simply lost. So it could be that there was problems with preserving the few treatises that we did get. But then again, we have the problem I talked about in Pythagoreanism, where you have kind of invented female treatises. It might be the case that a lot of these are are written as if they were from the perspective of a woman because of what they were going to talk about. Like if they were going to be about pleasure or if they were going to be about domestic virtue, that then there was a certain cachet in making these in the voice of a of, of, a, of a famous woman or of a woman associated with a famous philosopher. So it's just really difficult to get at the evidence. It's not, I don't think there was like a, a widespread destruction of female writing because of uh, jealous patriarchy, but there's problems of, of survival in all ancient texts and gender certainly does come in there and play some role in it as well. Uh, I was interested to read that there was an issue of textual transmission in later centuries, you know, going through the medieval Christian West and the, the Arabic tradition in the East, where it's believed that some of these works could have fallen into the hands of translators who held a low view of the intellectual capacities of women and who therefore transmitted those texts uh, anonymously, even attributed them to male authors. Do we know how widespread that sort of thing is likely to have been? It's really hard. That certainly is a viewpoint that's been put forward by people like Crystal Addy and other people who are looking for why don't we have more evidence? Where is our evidence gone? But My view, actually, so I work a lot on early Christianity and philosophy in early Christianity, and we really see kind of a a transformation of the philosophical life open 
to women, continuing, but in a new form in kind of monastic circles for women. And these women are named and they're called philosophers in the early Christian tradition. And their stories are preserved and their voices are preserved. And so I am suspicious of the argument that it was a, it was a conspiracy. I definitely think that there could be, were ancient people who, who would have tried to suppress anything written by women. But someone like Clement of Alexandria, who's um, an early Christian figure, he quotes a lot of these um, works. He calls ancient women philosophers, and he has no problem with them. And he treats them as widely known, and people could go and read these things at the time. They've just been lost. And it's not necessarily, things don't necessarily get lost because of malicious intent. <laughs> they get lost for all sorts of potential reasons. It's interesting that in, in a lot of writing from the Greco-Roman period, we often encounter philosophy personified as a woman or, or sort of elements of philosophical discourse like rhetoric or, or the virtues. How should we interpret this symbolic feminization of philosophy? What, what's it telling us about how women were perceived and how the acquisition of wisdom was conceptualized? One of the issues in this is that abstract nouns in Greek tend to be feminine. And so you have this grammatical reason for the link, and then that grammatical reason gets developed into allegorical systems. But it's not just that grammatical link. The grammatical link gets developed, I think, because it's very natural for to use this kind of exhortation to philosophy when you have male students. You know, it's like, you, you need to work hard. You need to work hard to achieve this beautiful thing. You know what this is just like when you need to work really hard to get that date with a girl, which you can't really get. You know, <laughs> like it's a, it has a particular punch if you're, if you're talking to using like the emotions to try to encourage people to, to choose a difficult life, uh, a life of virtue and a life of philosophy, to use these erotic and heterosexual images to kind of stir up your male student. So it really does imagine the quintessential male student as the one that's being attracted to live this life, live this life of philosophy. And even when, when women tend to become philosophers, they're often spoken of as becoming manly. So they kind of take on manly characteristics that allow them to, to do this pursuit. One of the things that confuses me slightly about this question of what women philosophers were doing exactly at that time is that there's a larger question of what just what philosophers were doing at that time. You know, we, we refer quite happily to Greco-Roman philosophy, but what a philosopher actually was and who counted as a philosopher, all of this gets a little bit indistinct, I suppose, when you look at it up close. So when you talk about philosophers of the, you know, say the, the, the classical period through to late antiquity, what exactly were these people engaged in doing? <laughs> it's such a good question because philosophy is such a polyvalent word and it's such an important word. And of course, we've all heard this many times, the etymology of philosophy is fundamentally about love right? It's love of wisdom. It's not intellectual pursuit. Fundamentally, it's this idea of being motivated by love. And often in the ancient world, what it's seen as is philosophy is about training yourself to see the world correctly. And when you see the world correctly, then you will act correctly. So there's this really intimate link between understanding correctly and, and leading the virtuous life or living correctly. And that kind of idea about philosophy is, is living according to reality is open to people who are not intellectuals. Mm -hmm. And in fact, the way that it develops, sometimes it's some people think that intellectualism gets in the way of, of leading that philosophical life because it you know, ties you up in knots or distracts you from, from living well. And so this broader concept of being a philosopher is one that is very happy to include undereducated or non-educated slaves and or women. But then there also in the ancient world, there is a more technical kind of what I like to think of as like professional philosophy, which does also exist in, in settings 
of, of succession in teacher-student relationships. And so there's, I think there's absolutely no question that women can be part of the former concept of philosophy, but I'm really interested in, in when women are considered able to become part of kind of that more professionalized philosophy where you learn from a teacher and then you pass on that teaching that you've learned about your philosophical system to a student. And so I think that's an important distinction that's there in the ancient world, but never made quite explicit enough for us to fully grasp that difference between philosophy that everybody does and philosophy that's open to like specialists. And was that career path, if you want to call it that, from student to professional philosopher, to, you know, teacher, professional scholar, someone who's writing recognized philosophical texts, was that open to women as far as we know, or were there certain obstacles that we can identify? Yep. So there definitely were obstacles. <laughs> I would say the couple of major obstacles. Number one, if you're talking about the ancient Greek world at all, is going to be modesty. So it's not an accident that the most of the women who are called philosophers from the ancient world had some relationship to prostitution <laughs> because those were also the women that were leading a public life. And so if women were leading a public life already, they had greater freedom to act in the ancient world. And so they could participate in these dialogues in public on the street corner in ways that would be completely off limits to a respectable woman whose world is that domestic sphere. So you could have philosophy in the domestic sphere, depending especially on who your family was. You know, if there were other philosophers in your family that wanted to teach you or to learn from you, you could do that and maintain your modesty, but you couldn't really be a public, a public intellectual and maintain traditional modesty. So that was a major, a major obstacle. You're listening to The Philosopher's Zone with me, David Rutledge, and I'm speaking with Dawn Laval-Norman from Australian Catholic University in Melbourne. We're talking about women philosophers in the ancient world. You've spoken about how philosophy was open to embracing daily practice, you know, rather than it just being a range of studies. It was seen as a, a way of life, and that this opened philosophy up to pursuits that included domestic practices and conduct, the kinds of things that are traditionally seen as women's activities. So can we talk a little bit more about that? I mean, what does a philosophy grounded in domestic practices and conduct look like? What are, what are its main concerns and how does it sort of work itself out? I was, I've been reading Musonius Rufus a little bit recently, and so he gives very practical advice for what it means for a woman to be a domestic philosopher. And he mostly talks about developing the virtues of self-control so that you use resources correctly and also you are a good steward of all that you have and also that you're able to train up your, your children to live a virtuous life and also be self-controlled. And so that's one of the major ways that you could be a domestic philosopher is having right relationships with family members and having right relationship with with your goods. I was interested to read as well that a lot of philosophical schools were based in the household of a philosopher. How would that have affected that perception? Yeah, I think a great example of that is Sozopatra. So if we're thinking about female philosophers in particular, Sozopatra was a Neoplatonic teacher in the fourth century CE, so well into the Christian era. And she wasn't a Christian herself, but she and her and her husband set up a domestic school. And it seemed, they had like two different chairs sort of in the same house. And a student would go and work with one of them in the morning and then go and work with another one in the afternoon. And so you had this like sort of a domestication of education as well. We Most of these, there were kind of public lectures that probably attracted large numbers of students. But if you worked with a philosopher, it was, it was very intimate. 
You know, you would go to their house and you would learn from them by sitting at their feet and asking them questions and living life with them. And so that idea, kind of domestic teaching of philosophy, is not female-specific. That's just kind of one way that philosophy worked. But that allowed, that kind of opened up a space for women to participate in a kind of domestic space that was, that was a sanctioned area to be a philosopher. We see in the writings of this period a number of accounts of male philosophers receiving advice from priestesses. Uh, One report has it that Pythagoras studied under a number of Delphic priestesses. Um, Plato has Socrates saying that he learned from priestesses. So what do we make of that? Because on one hand, it seems to suggest that we should understand priestly activity, uh, women's priestly activity, as being closely connected to philosophical activity. On the other hand, that interpretation sort of goes against the grain of our modern inclination to see philosophy and religion as very distinct and, and separate entities. Can you talk to that a bit? I think this is really interesting. Yeah, the... Ancient philosophers were often accused of impiety or not following, you know, correct religious norms. I mean, that's one of the major accusations against Socrates that led to his death was that he didn't have a correct view of the gods. But that doesn't mean he was an atheist. (laughs) He had a very lively religious belief. He had, you know, his personal daimon that he followed and he listened to and he had a great devotion to the gods. So most of the philosophical schools, even Epicureans who were thought of as atheists, they still believed in the gods. They just thought that the gods weren't interested in what humans did at all. So you have, it would be a a very unusual and surprising thing to have an ancient person who wanted to think of philosophy as something divorced from religion because philosophy as the idea of knowing reality correctly and living according to what reality actually was included gods in that reality in almost every conception of what that reality was. And often the way of talking about growing in knowledge was about becoming more godlike or assimilating yourself somehow to the divine. And that's kind of the process of of human ascent and, and growth in human knowledge. And so it doesn't come as a surprise that priestesses would be philosophers as well. And we even have actual evidence, not only um, in stories, but like, for instance, Plutarch, Plutarch, who was a priest himself in Delphi, he was good friends with some female priestesses there. And he wrote books for them because he said they had philosophical conversations together and he knew they would like these books. <laughs> so they have, they're, they're sort of like, we have kind of pictures of what this looked like on the ground. You know, these are, these are people who are at these religious centers who are, who are talking to each other about, you know, what is the divine or what is a good human life? And, and these, are, these are philosophical questions. Well, there's one famous woman philosopher who I'd like to talk about in some detail here, and that's Hypatia of Alexandria, who was born around the mid-4th century CE, died early in the 5th century, and her life and her death and her legacy uh, bring together some of the threads that we've been following here in, in very interesting ways. So to begin with, who was Hypatia? She was very famous during her lifetime. Why was that? She was very famous during her lifetime, but she's even more famous now, I would say. I would say if there's one ancient female philosopher whose name you know, it's probably Hypatia. And maybe one of the reasons for that is that the Journal of Feminist Philosophy is called Hypatia, (laughs) which is, you know, helps us all remember her name frequently. But what's important about her is she is one of the only, maybe the only ancient female philosopher whom we know about from more than one source. 
And so that gives her like a much richer biographical context. And we know a little bit more about what she actually taught than we do. So she's a more fleshed out figure. But she also had an extremely violent death, which of course made her famous in her own lifetime and then has just sparked the imagination of of so many subsequent generations. Um, We know... So to give a little bit of her biographical context, she was the daughter of a mathematician and astronomer in Alexandria named Theon. So she grew up in an intellectual house. She never married, and instead she took over kind of her father's uh, teaching role, and she developed an even bigger school of kind of Neoplatonic or Platonic um, education. And I think that's the other really interesting thing about Hypatia is she is one of those few female, ancient female philosophers who's also a teacher, but not just a teacher in a domestic setting, but teacher in very much the same way as a male platonic teacher would have been at the time with students coming in from the outside, um, writing, you know, being recommended to her from all over the area to study with her. She, w- she was also very political. She was famous for being really good friends with the governor of Alexandria, Orestes. So she was a political mover. Um, she was seen on the streets, you know, so not just in her house. So she, she is kind of a unique, a unique person. Uh, she sometimes gets some of these maternal roles. So what, uh, one of her students, Synesius, does talk about her like a mother, but she's, he also always calls her the philosopher. You know, that's like, that's what he thinks of her primarily as. Is she one of those figures whose biography has come down to us via the writings of male contemporaries? And, and is that significant in, in some way? Yes. And maybe, maybe no. <laughs> so the great thing about Hypatia, maybe, is that we might actually have some of her works because she, we know that she edited her father's uh, mathematical commentaries. So we know that she edited these surviving texts we just don't know what parts are hers and what parts are her dad's. And it's mathematics. And so we don't necessarily think of that as like the kind of philosophy that we would want. So we do have, we do have maybe some of her very words. We just don't know which ones they are. Um, but we also, it, and this is really interesting for Hypatia, because she's so famous for her death, we do also have some um, evidence for her that is contemporary with her when she was still alive. And these are the letters that her student Synesius wrote to her after he left the school and went back to the sticks where he was from. <laughs> he wrote all these letters to her saying, oh, I really miss, I miss you. <laughs> I miss school. <laughs> like life here is really hard. Both my sons have died. Like there's endless raids. Um, but I wrote this book here. Will you publish it in Alexandria for me? <laughs> and Hypatia, we don't have any of her replies, but we have this kind of, this uh, mirror image of her from these letters that her loving student uh, wrote to her during her own lifetime. So that makes her also quite unique. She's, she seems a bit more like historical because of those contemporary sources. But then the historians loved Hypatia. So uh, the first historian to talk about her, Socrates Scholasticus, uh, he wrote about her in his history, which was nearly contemporaneous with her death. So he talks about how she was a public platonic teacher in Alexandria and how she became a pawn in a political game that was playing out between Cyril, the bishop, and Orestes, who was the governor. And she sided with Orestes, the governor, and was seen as one of the wedges um, between Cyril and Orestes. And as a result, she she was um, a mob of Christian monks came and killed her in public in a really gruesome way. And this story is kind of retold in different ways by different um, different historians, but it's always sort of has the same bones to it, that she, it was this kind of mob of Christians that kind of 
tore her apart, basically, and killed her in a very public, a very public way. Yeah, tell me more about that, because she, she was very well-connected and well-loved within the Christian communities of her day, and, and yet she met her death at the hands of this Christian mob. But what, what happened there? I think that that, I'm so glad you said that, because one of the things, Hypatia, because she's so famous because of her, of her death, sort of can become a symbol or like a flashpoint. And she's seen as, you know, the last light of intellectualism that was finally snuffed out before the Dark Ages came or something like that. And this is not what was going on at all. Because as we just discussed with Synesius, Synesius was a Christian bishop. Like he was... He was not a pagan. He was very devoted to to being a Christian. He had a very philosophical understanding of what that meant. But he didn't have a problem with Hypatia at all. And so it's not Hellene versus Christian, as they would be called necessarily. It's much more complicated. And that's how the earliest historians talk about it. They say Orestes himself was a Christian. He was in conflict with this other Christian, Seal of Alexandria. Um, There were a lot of monks who had a lot of energy and a lot of uh, opinions who thought they were doing what Cyril wanted and they committed this act of violence and then Cyril got in deep trouble for it. And so it's not as though it was just like everything was okay. It was it was very devastating to his reputation. At least this is what the historians tell us. So it's a it's it, it was a complicated moment and it was it was really condemned in the time that it happened itself. It wasn't like people were okay with this happening in the streets of, of Alexandria. And just to get the story straight, she was working as an advisor to Orestes, right? He was the, the, the Roman prefect of Alexandria, and he was in a political feud with Cyril, the Christian bishop, and then Hypatia gets on the wrong side of this mob because she's seen to be siding with, with the Roman governor. Is that the story? That's it. That's it. Now, different versions add some other reasons why she was unpopular. So 100 years after that first version, uh, another historian says that it was actually she suffered what she did because of jealousy over her exceeding wisdom and, spe- and especially concerning her mastery of astronomy. So there you get a different interpretation. There you get an interpretation of, well, maybe it's because she was a little bit too smart and maybe that has gendering to it as well. Like a woman should not be teaching in public. You know, this is a problem. But you also get that connection to astronomy and later traditions develop that into um, she was involved in magic. So, of course, it was totally justified that these people to kill her because she was, you know, dabbling in things she shouldn't have been dabbling in. Yeah, yeah. I understand that much of her writing and teaching had been devoted to bringing Neoplatonism and Christianity into accord with each other, but that one of the consequences of her murder was that a, a rift opened up between the Christians and the philosophers within her circle to the point where philosophers began to identify as pagans in direct opposition to Christians. And I'm interested to, to hear from you if that is in fact what happened and if it had sort of long-lasting historical consequences. I think it's easy to hang a lot of things on Hypatia that aren't necessarily, uh, that we shouldn't be doing. <laughs> I mean, we do have a lot of evidence about Hypatia, but she's part of trends that are happening much bigger than herself. Uh, and it was a very shocking thing that she had, you know, this this body of students that were pagans and Christians and, and, and she was able to keep the peace among them and then that peace did not last. But that doesn't mean that the philosophical schools like broke into two halves at that point. And actually, I think what's interesting is that the philosophical schools as they developed in different geographical locations were quite different from each other. So in Alexandria, there is a lot more continuity between what developed later. So the philosophical school continues and Christians continue to be a part of it. 
We have a really famous Christian philosopher uh, named John Philoponus, who is working in the school of Alexandria much later. And he's still like trying to reconcile Neoplatonic philosophy and Christianity. And so this is not the end of a story. This is not like a a permanent riff. This is a this is an important moment in a longer story about the history of, of of the continuity of really of Alexandrian philosophy throughout late antiquity. Dawn Laval Norman, she's a senior research fellow at the Institute for Religion and Critical Inquiry at Australian Catholic University in Melbourne, and we'll put more info on the website. This has been the Philosopher's Zone on RN and the ABC Listen app with me, David Rutledge, and it's been great to have you company this week. Catch you next time. <laughs>